I have a couple of things to say to you this morning before I start my message. The first is, Merry Christmas. The second is, I'm sorry, I don't know why when I gave the scripture reading that I uh, messed it up. I started with 2, 1 through 11, and then I went to 2, 1 through 8, and good grief, now I'm down to 2, 1 through 7, and that's what I meant all all the time anyway. So, whatever I did, I apologize for. As you can see, this is Lesson 2, and it is entitled, uh, Lost Love in the Church at Ephesus, Part 1. And uh, so I want to start out by raising a question that that Bill McRae shared with me a couple of months ago when Jeanette and I were up in Canada with them, because Bill and Marilyn have led a tour to Turkey and to these churches, and, uh, and he, he pointed out the fact that the church, in a sense, is just, just rubble in terms of what's left of the church. So let's go to some of our slides, and you'll just see uh, for a moment uh, some of the kind of remnants uh, of pictures that show what that's like. I'm sure they're coming here. It's not that bad. <laughs> There's more to see. And this, I think, is the library that's there, and you can see the remnant. Actually, the city was about 250,000 people, almost a quarter of a million people. Now there is a city nearby that is a fairly large city, but all you have is just rubble uh, and remnants. Okay, let's go to our next slide. And here you see a, 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 a stadium Uh, as you would see in many parts of the ancient world. The next slide, if you could read that, that says that that is the burial place of John. Now, I'm not sure how much money I would put on that particular statement, but that at least is the claim that John not only lived and served there, but was buried there. Let's take a look at our next slide. There, there are a couple of things that are interesting to me. One is the, the rubble and the ruins, but the building in the center there with the dome, if you go to the next slide, we'll look at it from a different angle. That's a mosque uh, with, with its minaret. Bill was saying that 98% of Turkey is now uh, Muslim in terms of their faith. And so the question that he raised for me, and I think wanted me to pass on to you, was what happened? What happened to the time when there was such a vital and vibrant faith in that part of the world, and now all you have basically is rubble? I'm not saying there are no Christians there. I'm saying that what you have is the rubble of Christianity and, and all of the evidences of, of the Muslim faith. So something must have gone wrong. And I think that what we read in the book of Revelation will certainly be a clue uh, to that. Now, I'm going to make also, I guess, my apologies at the beginning rather than the end. I'm going to do three messages. That's my take on it at this moment in time. And you know that can change. But I plan to do three messages on the church at Ephesus. I don't plan to do that on all of the other churches, perhaps not on any of the other churches, but I want to give you my excuse for that. First of all, this is the first church that is addressed. Now, as we'll see on the map in a little bit, it's it's sort of the starting point of a, of a loop 
if you would, of the churches. But I don't think that's all that's involved. When you look in the New Testament, you will find that Ephesus is the only church that is prominent in the New Testament that is dealt with. Now, there's a lot of extra-biblical history, which I've chosen to bypass for my purposes, but just to go with the biblical documentation about this church at Ephesus. You do see Thyatira mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 16, as the place where Lydia uh, originated from. You do see mention of Laodicea. And when we look at the map, you'll see how uh, close Laodicea is to Colossae. And so when Paul writes to the Colossians, he basically says, circulate this letter to the church at Laodicea as well, which, which of course makes sense. But no church other than Ephesus has the prominence that this church has in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. And therefore, it seems to me that it deserves perhaps a little longer look. This church has so many things going in its favor. When you look at the, at the commendations that our Lord has for this church, it's, it's impressive. And you almost wonder when you get to the, but I have this against you, you almost wonder, well, why with all those good things would he speak now in such critical terms of this one area, which perhaps we have not placed enough emphasis on? It looks good, and I guess I would have to say it looks like our church. We, like Ephesus, we've had the benefit, and I'm talking now not just about Community Bible Chapel, but about Believer's Chapel and, and all the, the, the great churches in the Dallas area, We've been in the shadow of, of Dallas Seminary. We've been in, in the shadow of great teachers and great teaching. And so many of the things that are descriptive of the church at Ephesus would be descriptive of the church in Dallas and, and in terms of our church. And so we ought to be thinking a lot about the church at Ephesus because of the proximity that it has to us in so many ways. I'm concerned when I come to, to this church uh, in, in Ephesus, I'm concerned that we might overcorrect. Sometimes when you see an automobile accident, it'll be because somebody's been driving along and, and they kind of wander out of their lane and then they suddenly realize what they've done and they jerk the steering wheel and off they go too far in the opposite direction. I have a little bit of concern that when we look at the problem at the church of Ephesus, that there is a danger of overcorrection, or if you want to put it in different words, there are people within evangelical circles who would point to the church at Ephesus and they would give us a solution that I think is not really biblical or accurate. And so I want to focus a little bit on that. And then finally, I want to tell you that in this message, because I've left myself two more, is I want to focus on the problem. The problem at the church at Ephesus, not so much on the solution. And I want to look in the next couple of weeks, I want to look at what Paul has to say and what John has to say about this whole matter of having love within the church and how that ought to look. Remember that the correction is that they are to remember 
the height or from where they have fallen, they are to repent and they are to repeat. That is, they are to return to those deeds that they once did. And so I think it's important for us to look in the scriptures and ask ourselves, just what are those deeds? And it seems to me that when this book is written, it is written in view of the fact that they are exposed to other revelation. In fact, the church at Ephesus probably has a a greater exposure to, to the New Testament material than perhaps anybody. Some have said the Gospel of John may have been written at Ephesus. And Paul, of course, had a significant impact. So there's a whole lot of of revelation that is available uh, to them. But I'd like to focus on the problem this time and look more at the solutions later. Now, the next shot is going to be a piece of my fine uh, artwork. And we're going to ask the question, uh, what happened at, at Ephesus? Now, I really did discover something in Windows 7. I know all you Apple users will be ecstatic about this. But Windows 7 has this little snip thing. So you can go cut the screen out. But it also has the opportunity then, when you do that, to take this highlighter and to go around and do these things. And it has a pen that you can change colors on. Okay, I admit it. I got carried away. I know I'm an awful artist. We've already agreed on that. But it is important, I think, to look at at this busy map because it tells us, uh, I think, some important things. You know that in the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas never got this far. They came through Cyprus and whatever. They went to Lystra and Derbe, and then they turned around and came back, but they never really got this far. The blue line... I'm sorry for those of you who are colorblind, but the blue line shows the second missionary journey. And you remember Paul and Silas now come. Their first attempt in Acts chapter 16 is to come down into Asia. And it says that they were forbidden to do so. Then their effort was to go north up into Bithynia. And again, the Spirit did not permit them to go there. So that the church at Ephesus, in a sense, um, there's nothing there going on in the early missionary journeys. Now, my theory is that had the Spirit of God not sent them to the more distant place, Macedonia, Philippi, and and then to Achaia, where you have uh, uh, Corinth and, and so on, if they had not made that more distant Uh, trek, I'm not sure they would have been inclined to do so. So God closes the doors. They come across to Troas. I'm sorry I blocked that out. And then from Troas, you remember, that's where the the Macedonian vision was, was given. And as a result of the Macedonian vision... Then Paul and the, and the group went to Philippi. That's where Lydia and others were saved. Philippian jailer and his family were saved and a church was founded. And then if we had more room on our PowerPoint and on the screen, you would come down the left and you would come through Thessalonica, Berea, and eventually you would go to Athens and Corinth. And then just close to Corinth, to Centrea, and then you would come across, you pick up the blue line down at the bottom, and it comes over to Ephesus. Now, second missionary journey. They were prohibited from going into Asia on the entrance or on the beginning, the commencement of that ministry. 
When Paul is in uh, Corinth, he purposes, we're told in the scriptures, he purposes to do something. He makes a vow and he cuts his hair. From what I can tell, Paul wants to be back in Jerusalem for Pentecost or one of the feasts. And so he's already fixed on getting back to Jerusalem and he's He's moving along and he's not looking for any bypath meadows, no waylaying. And so he comes to Ephesus. You remember, he comes with Priscilla and Aquila. And it says in the text, he will leave them there. He then goes to the synagogue and he preaches to the Jews in the synagogue. And they say to him, will you please stay and tell us more about this? And Paul says, no. For some reason, he says, this is not my intent or my purpose for this time. He said, if the Lord wills, I will return. So as you see that blue line, then he returns back down and will end up in, in uh, Judea and in, in Jerusalem. Second missionary journey. So only a very, very brief impact and ministry on his second missionary journey. I don't know what you call that color, but the pinky one. Um, this, oh, thank you so much, Will. See, when you come up, Apollos was from Alexandria. So he came up, I assume, from Egypt, and he ends up in Ephesus. And Apollos was a man who knew a great deal about the prophecies pertaining to the coming of Christ, Right? Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and more carefully explained to him the way of the gospel. And so in Paul's absence, Apollos is now powerfully proclaiming the gospel to the people at Ephesus. So Ephesus gets Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos in Paul's absence. And, and in a sense, they're sort of turning the warming oven on. Uh, to, to, to be set for Paul's uh, third missionary journey. Well, that doesn't even look green to me, but that's what I thought it was. So coming back now with our green arrow, this time what you see is Paul and Silas returning, and it appears they may have passed through either Laodicea or somewhere on their way, but this time... They come to Ephesus, and that's where Paul is going to sustain a much more lengthy ministry in Ephesus. Six months, and then you remember there's opposition, so he goes and starts ministering in the school of Tyrannus. And, and they're, they're there, uh, Paul is there roughly three years. And, and I think I put it in your text, in Acts 19, chap, uh, chapter, chapter 19, verse 10, it says, all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Is that not an incredible statement? Somehow, Paul's Ephesian ministry, buttressed by the ministry of others like Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, somehow that ministry, which had been hindered in his previous visits, now bursts wide open and somehow the gospel spreads out my assumption is that it spreads out to those seven churches of Asia. And therefore, Paul has some contact with those churches. 
And, and it may well be the residual fruit of Paul's ministry that led to conversions and the birth of those churches. We don't know all of those details. But the reason that I put the red line in, is I had one more color left to go. Actually, I had several. But the red line now follows the order. Ephesus, Smyrna, don't go to Thyatira yet. Ephesus, Smyrna, I tried to bypass Thyatira. Pergamum, then Thyatira, then Sardis, then Philadelphia, then Laodicea. That's the order in which our Lord speaks to the churches. And you can see that there is a, a sort of geographical element to that. Now, I don't think geographical elements are the primary things involved, but there's certainly a factor as, as a look at the map will tell you. A couple of other things. When you come to 1 Corinthians 15, 32, Paul refers to fighting the wild beasts in Ephesus. You remember, things didn't go exceptionally easy. There were some very interesting things that took place. You remember that, for instance, because the gospel spread so rapidly and so powerfully, the idol-making business was really in trouble, and the idol-makers' union didn't like that at all, and so they create this disturbance, and uh, and they want to do all kinds of, of damage uh, as a result of that. But also you see uh, that the work of God was so powerful that people, you remember the seven sons of Sceva? Seven sons of Sceva wanted to sort of uh, capture the power of Paul. And so they were trying to cast out demons by the, the Jesus that Paul preached. And the demons basically said, we know Paul and we know Jesus. We don't know you, partner. And, and so these guys come racing out of there uh, like they'd been through the screening station in the, the uh, airport. Well, we don't need to go out there any farther. But anyway, uh, they wouldn't have needed screening. Let's just put it that way. So away they come, and now the people in the saints in, in, in Ephesus are so impressed with the power of the gospel and how much greater it is than these magical incantations and formulas that they burn, $50,000 or whatever it was, worth of books that were the magic books. And so the gospel was powerfully grip, gripping and grasping that maybe the opposition that Paul faced is the wild beast to which he refers. In 1 Corinthians 16, 8, he says he's going to stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door of opportunity has been opened for him. Ephesians 1, 1, uh, in some translations, indicates that the book of Ephesians was written to those at Ephesus. That is a debated matter. I don't think it's something we want to get into, but some at least would agree that if, that the book of Ephesians was written to Ephesus and perhaps that broader group of churches as well. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul tells Timothy to remain on at Ephesus. And one of the things, remember, that took place was that there were those who were coming in with false teaching and Paul sent him not only to see to it that church leaders were appointed, but that false teachers were put down. I should remind you, by the way, and I, I, I forgot my green arrow, but on the third missionary journey, when Paul went up and then went over to a Macedonia and then down to Achaia, he came back 
But he did not stop. His ship did not stop at Ephesus. It came past Ephesus to Miletus. And, and that's Acts chapter 20. There he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus. And he tells them he's not going to see them again. He knows that he's going to Jerusalem and, and that there's bonds that await him. And he warns them about false teaching and false teachers. And he says to them, you need, in effect, to guard the flock of God. So false teaching in Ephesus was a serious concern. Timothy's presence there was a part of it. The interesting text to me is 2 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, where he says, all in Asia have deserted him. All in Asia have deserted him. Isn't that an interesting thing? Now, I'm not sure that he's saying every single believer it may be that those who were with him, some who were leaders, he, he does uh, uh, indicate that Onesiphorus was one who remained faithful and was not ashamed of his chains. My take on that then is that as Paul says in Philippians, that some took his imprisonment as an opportunity to gain some foothold. It may well be that there were those in Ephesus who wanted to be regarded as apostles who basically said, it's obvious that you can't listen to Paul because he's in prison. And, and, and he must be in prison because he hasn't been faithfully serving God or whatever it was. And, and so anyway, there were those who forsook Paul in Asia. Very interesting to me. Now we come to our text. And in uh, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1, we first see the one who is speaking. It says, oh, by the way, if you have a red letter version, I really don't like them particularly, but I happen to have uh, my ESV version is a red letter version. And it's almost striking when you turn in Revelation and you look, especially in chapters 2 and 3, it's red letter. Because this is our Lord Jesus speaking. And there is a sense in which the words that he speaks here are virtually dictation. Now, that certainly varies in other places. But this is Jesus talking, as even the ESV red letter version would indicate, and I suppose others, although I did not check them. So when you see the statement in verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden uh, lampstands says this. That's a tieback, as you will find in all the letters to the seven churches. It's a tieback to the revelation of our Lord Jesus that is described for us in late chapter 1. But it seems to me that there is something about whatever elements are picked out of that description. There is some particular relevance for those aspects of our Lord's being and character to be emphasized with respect to that church, I see that the, that the love relationship of the church at Ephesus has, has caused them to grow, if you want to say it, somewhat distant from our Lord. If I'm correct in that, it's very interesting to me that the description of our Lord is one that speaks of His very close proximity. He's not speaking now, you know, as one who is high and removed, but he's speaking as, as one who holds the, the uh, seven stars in his hand. 
And those are the angels, uh, and I personally believe those are the messengers to which this uh, revelation would be sent and through whom it would be distributed. If these were house churches, then it's, it's logical to assume somebody has to be the correspondent or whatever. But he holds those people in his right hand. That's close proximity, is it not? And then it says that he is walking amongst the candlesticks. And it reminded me, because there's going to be a reference to the paradise of God, it reminded me of the description of our Lord in Genesis chapter 3, of God who in the cool of the evening was walking in the midst of the garden. And remember, after Adam and Eve sinned, they, they sought to hide themselves from God. But there again, him walking about the churches it seems to me, is a picture of his intimate interest and involvement and proximity to his church. He is not a God far off. He is a God who is near and very much interested in what's going on. Now, the commendation we see in verses uh, 2 and 3, and it picks up again in verse 6. He says, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary now of course you have the rebuke but then look at verse 6 yet this you do have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate commendation Put a footnote in your mind because we'll probably come back to this. I don't know why, and I'm pondering it, but in every imperative and in every directive, he speaks in the singular, not the plural. When it says you, it is you singular, not you plural. When he says you are to do this, repent, remember, Redo, replay those works, singular. I don't know why that's true, but it is blatantly true in the text. And so let's think about that. Maybe by the time I get to lesson three in uh, Ephesus, I'll have figured it out. Or that one of you will have figured it out and had the kindness to share the solution with me. So he says, I know your works and the next expression is, is that it's your hard labor. It's the things that you do that do not come easily. It's work that is done at a cost, at a price. Your patient endurance. And then again in verse 2, he says, you don't tolerate false teaching. You put teachers to the test and you find those who are false and you don't embrace them or their teaching. Would you not say that was a good thing? Especially in the light of Acts chapter 20, where he has warned them that some, even from amidst the midst of their own ranks, are going to rise up to get a following after themselves. They're doing well in terms of their preservation of doctrinal uh, purity. And they're doing well in the midst of adversity and persecution. In verse 3, they're patiently enduring their adversity and their persecution without growing weary. Now, 
Here comes in verses 4 and 5 the rebuke. But I want you to notice that there's further words of commendation in verse 6. My question is, why does he save that commendation for that place? Why does he not give it up along with the other uh, commendations? I think I have the answer to that. If I'm wrong, then I've got two more lessons to figure that out. But I think I, I can see the answer to uh, that one. They hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The reality is nobody knows for certain exactly what it is they're doing. In a city like Ephesus, uh, a, a port city, it seems to me that the emphasis here is not on their doctrine as much as on their practice. Now, those two come very closely connected, I understand. But it seems to me that somehow this is a system of belief that advocates loose living. Um, and, and I think most commentators would probably agree with that. Some would probably take it further. Here's the indictment in verse 4. You have, and, and I, you'll notice I give you some of the options, because the, the word that is used is actually a word that is used later uh, in, in these letters to the seven churches where it means you allow something to happen. It would be sort of like uh, you're walking down the hall and you see uh, somebody else's child beating up another child mercilessly and you walk on and ignore it. That's what's going on in this other church and it's exactly the same word. They're letting something go. I initially expected, and, and I guess I was trying to follow the NIV when it says, you have forsaken your first love. My inclination was to see that as more active, more purposeful. I, I'm, I'm now more inclined to see that in terms of neglect. But you do notice the various translations. The ESV, uh, the CSB say, abandoned the love you had at first. New American Standard, left the love you had at first. Net Bible, departed from your first love. And then the NIV, which seems almost to be the strongest in its language, forsaken uh, your first love. I'm inclined to see that, as I said, more in the realm of neglect. And I guess I would say, maybe you can get a, a feel for this. If you have plants at your house, you know, the kind that sit in the window and around, and, and you get so busy, maybe at Christmas time, you, you know, you're so busy putting up decorations and so on, and you forget to water them or put any of those special little minerals or whatever in, those plants begin to send you a message, do they not? And that is they droop, you know, and, and ultimately if you don't take action, they die because they've been neglected. It isn't that you said to yourself, I don't like that plant anymore. No more water for you. You know, it, it's not that. It's just you're just busy doing other things and somehow by default, it ends up being ignored. That's my temptation. Now, the question becomes for, for the scholars and for us who are more pragmatic, what is first love? If one has neglected or departed from their first love, what is the first love? It seems to me that you have to take this in the sense of a certain kind of chronology. In other words, it's a time stamp. While it is 
true that some things, uh, you know, first things first, and now we're talking in terms of priority, he's going to say, do those deeds you did at first. Is that not chronological? I think it is. And so it seems to me that you have to look at it that way. Now, some commentators would say it's our first love in the sense that it's our love for God. And, and no one would dispute the fact that that is of the utmost priority. Some would say it's our love for others, in particular believers. First John, man, it's going to have a lot of that stuff in there. And we'll look at that later. And then our love for the lost. One of the more recent commentaries on Revelation leans in that way, that they've lost their evangelistic love, as it were, for those lost uh, and to see them come to faith. Here's my definition. The love that we first experienced and then expressed when we came to faith. The love that we experienced and expressed when we come to faith. What that means is all dimensions of love are evident and included, not just one particular piece of it. Not just love for the lost, not just love for your brother, not just love for God, but all of that. Now, that's very consistent with what you see in the book of Acts, is it not? If you think about Acts uh, 2 and you maybe carry it through to, say, verse uh, chapter 6, you have the church, they are gathering daily, uh, meeting in the temple and from house to house. They are breaking bread, they are gathering for fellowship. And, and, and for prayer, and for the breaking of bread, and for the apostles' doctrine. So they're gathering for all of these things, and they're doing so on a regular, actually on a daily basis. Then you see in, in Acts 2 and in Acts chapter 4 that they were selling their possessions. Now, I think this is where it ties into Revelation a, a fair bit. They had a sense, when they trusted in Christ, they had a sense that Jesus was coming very soon. And so, who, you know, who cared about selling the family farm or whatever it was uh, that, that one had? They, they were very generous with their things because they saw the Lord as being very near in terms of His return. I'm not saying that's the only motivation. I'm saying, if you knew, if you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow... Might that affect the way you spend your money today? I would think it would. And, and you wouldn't be nearly as apprehensive. And I think there are actually those in the evangelical scholarly community who would say they were foolish to have sold their goods when they did in Acts chapter 2 because then when hard times came, they didn't have any money. Uh, and I've told you this, this is my take on that, but I'll tell you one more time. When Rome came and sacked Jerusalem, they were after their wealth, among other things. They were after their wealth. And the people who looked fat and sassy, they got it really hard. The people who had given up their possessions, who cared about the poor? In fact, you remember when Jerusalem was left, the poor were left there because they didn't have anything to take away. You just leave them alone. So really, this act of faith and trust and generosity was for the benefit of those who gave their resources away. But it seems to me that you see there in Acts chapter 6, the care for the widows. You see this kind of love and affection. You also see this proclamation of the gospel. 
that's there. And even when they are brought and threatened and beaten for sharing their gospel, they praise God for the privilege of doing so. So what I'm suggesting to you is when you read in the early chapters of the book of Acts, you find every single element involved in the life and the attitudes of the early church. And this seems to me to characterize that love that they had. Now, um, I see Paul smiling back there. He sent me a, a, a text in 1 John chapter 4, which, which talks about the relationship between our love for God and our love for others. And we'll talk about 1 John a, a little bit later, but, but the reality is you cannot love God without loving others. You can't separate them. So why are we trying to separate them in terms of what first love is? We love God. We love our brothers. We love others. That's a part of our love. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10 says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. In other words, as we love other people, we manifest our love for Christ. You don't separate those. You see them uh, brought together. And then you see the relationship between God's love for us and our love for him. First John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. You cannot separate love into individual components, I think, and, and win the day with this text. Your first love is your cosmic love, the overall global picture of your love health that you had when you first came to faith in Jesus Christ. I think that's the way that uh, our Lord intended us to understand that. Okay, here's an interesting thought, for me at least. What is the relationship between the strengths of the Ephesian church and its loss of love? Now, I have to tell you, I, I'm, in fact, I confess it in point A, and that is this is, this is a personal fetish with me. And so it, it, you, you might as well expect I'm inclined or tempted to overreact. But there is, even within evangelical Christians, there is a sense in which people are downplaying devotion to truth and sound doctrine as though somehow that is opposed in some way or competitive to real love. And so they'll talk about, yeah, that's a church, and yeah, they're all about doctrine, but they don't love each other. Well, it is certainly possible for that to be true, but those two don't necessarily have to be true. It's not uh, that one or the other must be true. It's that both must be true at the same time. And I'll talk about that in a second. There is a relationship, I think, between devotion to doctrine and lack of love at Ephesus. They were devoted to sound doctrine. They were lacking in love. And I don't think that you see those two as somehow totally unrelated to each other. There was a relationship there. I believe there may be a relationship here and in any other church. So we need to look at that possibility. And I guess what I'm saying is every strength has its own inherent weaknesses. Isn't it interesting when you look in Romans chapter 12 and it talks about the exercise of spiritual gifts, that it will talk about the one who gives needs to give with simplicity and, and that's either translated in terms of generosity or in terms of not having dual motives. 
So in, in, in case one wanted to give, and then you got this great big plaque, you know, on the church or whatever, or as, as uh, Matthew, Jesus talks about in Matthew, you know, that's like blowing the trumpets when you do something. Hey, that's a problem. A good gift may be distorted by, by bad motivations. And, and so it says the one who shows mercy must do so with joy and grateful, not, not begrudgingly so. So the gifts may have that problem. That's why in Romans 12, verse 9 and following, following the exercise of gifts, you come to the teaching on love. 1 Corinthians, spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, teaching on love. Come back to chapter 14. How does the church exercise spiritual gifts in love? So there is the need for a relationship between love and the exercise of gifts. Our strengths may be a weakness. They may become a weakness. And so we need to be careful about that. I call this, I I can't give you exactly a verse. I'll keep looking. I'm sure there is one. But just call it the pride of rightness. There is a sense in which all of us, myself included, can easily say, we've got this right, and they've got it wrong. And, and there's a smugness about that, an arrogance, a way of looking down at others. And that certainly is not the manifestation of love. Love is service that comes from humility, not something that derives itself from pride. I've told you this one before. This was a fellow, Ed Martin, who was with us years ago. But he said one time, it's hard for a watchdog to smile. And I, I was thinking about using an illustration with uh, breeds of dogs, but I knew I'd make somebody, maybe a lot of people, mad. But, but you know, there are certain people who are Rottweiler Christians. Uh, you know, and there are other guys that are lapdog Christians. Okay? And, and so there's something that inherently goes. And the watchdogs of the church need to be very careful. They learn... They need to learn to smile. They need to learn to back off and they need to get out of the fortress mentality that somehow you don't let anybody into the club until you have vetted them so thoroughly, you know, that, that, you've, that you've run most people off. Now, am I saying we ought to be sloppy about people coming into our body? I am not. I'm just saying there is a demeanor. There is a demeanor. And you can either have have that smiling, loving, embracing smell, or you can have the getaway odor that some churches may manifest. Okay, so there is a relationship, I think, between the strength of the church at Ephesus and its weakness. And we we need to think about that ourselves, because our strengths are the things that we're inclined to feel good about, And we may be blind, therefore, to the weaknesses that come from them. What's the solution to the problem? I don't have this on your notes, but I thought about it, and I like it. So I'm going to add it to mine, and maybe you can add it to yours. The solution is not subtraction, it's addition. Now, when it comes to the federal budget, the solution is subtraction. Okay, there are times when the solution to a problem is to take something away. 
That is not true when it comes to truth and love. You don't embrace and embellish truth by doing away with love, and you don't embrace and embellish love by doing away with truth. What you have to do is if you have a, a church that is devoted to truth and it's lost its love, then you need to add love to truth. Not take something away, but add. Oh, I'm starting to get excited. Okay. The solution is not this mushiness that you see, for instance, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Here's a man living with his father's wife. And Paul says... The church not only is not doing anything about it, the church is actually proud of themselves. I think that if you went to the church at Corinth, they may have a banner out in front that says, we're the church that loves unconditionally. And, and you know, that, that has a kind of a good sound to it, and it's just flat wrong. Because there, love is going to manifest itself in caring discipline. Not in neglect, but in, in loving action. Now, that's where I get back to verse 6. When you come to verse 6, and it talks about, uh, it, it, he's just said, do the deeds you did at first, or I'm coming uh, to you, and I'll remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Then he comes back and says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Why does he save that word of commendation for after his rebuke when he's already given commendation up above? You know why? Because I think what he's saying is, don't overcorrect. Don't take my words to say that it is wrong to protect sound doctrine. Don't take my words to say it is wrong to exercise discipline in the case of sin. I'm with you when you say no to the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I'm with you in that. And he's with them after he has talked about their need to repent. And so that says to me that he is saying to that church, you have a problem with love. Don't stop doing what you were doing in regard to purity. You may do it differently. You may do it with different motivations. But don't give up your devotion to purity and to truth. Look for a minute at First Timothy uh, chapter 1. Well, there are so many texts that deal with this. But look, I, I want you to look at the relationship between truth and love. Because these are bedfellows. These are not enemies of one another. These are, are, are friends. They're married together. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. You know what that says to me? The absence of love makes one susceptible to false teaching. That's the way I read this. If you turn away from love, which is the product of sound teaching, he says the goal of our teaching is love. If you depart from love, you actually are headed in the direction of impure teaching. And you are going to cling to those alleged truths that somehow confirm and embrace your lack of love. That is not to be the case. 
First John chapter 4, we do not have time, and I'm going to come back to First John anyway. But when you look at First John chapter 4, I want you to notice the way in which he deals with truth and love. The, the, the first verses begin with false teaching. First John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. How do you know? How do you know whether the Spirit of God is there or not? By truth. By truth. There are certain doctrinal truths that tell you whether somebody is following Jesus or not. Whether somebody is teaching Christ crucified or not. So this section is talking about how important it is to guard yourselves against falsehood and false teachers. As this chapter then unravels, now he talks about love and the practice of love. And my point is, he puts the emphasis on preserving the truth and practicing love in the same chapter, and he marries them. Because they are not enemies. They are not adversaries. They are beloved uh, friends. Now, pointing to the preacher for a minute, the problem may be a wrong focus. When Paul says the goal of our instruction is love, it is possible that there is instruction that does not have love as its goal. If that is the case, that instruction needs to change. It is possible that there are those who are preaching the truth, who are not preaching the truth in love. And if that is the case, then the preacher needs to change. But you don't separate or divorce love from truth. You add whatever is missing, whether it's love to truth or truth to love, you add it. You don't subtract it. All right, let's take a look at the uh, solution. Remember, repent, repeat. Remember from where you have fallen. Very interesting to me, the NIV says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you a caution here. We need to be careful that we don't measure the height. By the way, the word height isn't there in the, in the text. It ought to be italicized. It says, remember from where you have fallen. That's added um, in the text. But when we think about remembering the height from which we have fallen, the danger in my mind is that we go back and we look at our lives and we look at the high point of our life as somehow that's what we're to remember? I personally don't buy that. And here's, here's one reason. Uh, Luke chapter 7. Jesus is having dinner at the table with a bunch of, of uppity-ups. And, and this woman comes along and she begins to, to wash our Lord's feet and wash it with her hair and her tears. And you remember the, the, the smug religious guys are saying to themselves, if he knew who this was... <laughs> He wouldn't let her touch it. And Jesus says, I have a question to ask you, Simon. Who loves most? The one who's forgiven much or the one who's forgiven little? 
And he says, well, I suppose it's the one who has forgiven much. I think that we understand the love of Christ not so well from the height of our own devotion as from the lack of it. I think that when we come to grips with the reality of who we are, in particular who we were before we were saved, and we understand the degree to which we've been forgiven, that's when we begin to comprehend the love of God. I don't believe that the measure of the love of God is the high point of my spirituality. I just don't. So it seems to me, therefore, that when we remember from where we are following, what we have to do is remember Him, not us. So I'm going to quickly move to my final point, which is a sort of a Christmas point, but it fits. We're to remember from where we have fallen. Every week, we are not commanded, as you know in Scriptures, to remember Christmas. We're not commanded, as you know in Scripture, to remember Easter, per se. What we are commanded to do is to remember our Lord in His incarnation, symbolized by the bread, and His death, symbolized by the wine. In a sense, then, we are not to remember Christmas annually, (laughs) the incarnation, We are to remember the Incarnation regularly, consistently. The early church did it daily. It seems like the apostolic church did it weekly. Some people now do it annually. Folks, if you need to remember from where you have fallen, you have fallen from the love of Christ. And that love is to be celebrated every week. So you remember who you were. You remember the the height from which He has come to take on flesh without sin and in that body to die for our sins. So for a believer in Jesus Christ, our remembrance ought to be a regular thing. It ought to be a part of the fabric of what we do. I pray that that's why you come and gather with us every week to remember the Lord. I would say this to those, if there's anyone here who may be apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, I would say this. If you want to know the love of God, then you will know that love of God in the person and the sacrificial work of Jesus. Period. First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. There's the love of God for us. Or in John 3.16, if properly translated, for this is the way God loved the world, in that he gave his son. When it says so, it doesn't mean so much. It means like this. God loved the world like this. He gave his son to die a sacrificial death at Calvary. If you're here apart from Jesus Christ, apart from faith in him, then come to know him and his love through the person of our Lord Jesus. And it seems to me that one of the tragedies of a church lacking love is that we are a reflection of Christ and we therefore ought to be a reflection of his love. If we lack love, then we lack love that very thing that drew people to him, 
even sinners like that woman, she was drawn to Jesus, knowing his perfection, but knowing his love for sinners. Be drawn to him. Father, we thank you for these words to the church at Ephesus. Help us, Father, to understand them correctly, to apply them as we should. For your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen.